This is Global Greek Influence. I'm Panagiota Pimenidou. Today I'm with Professor Greg Stefanopoulos, the Willard Henry Doe Professor of Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology in the School of Chemical Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Greg was born in Kalamata, Greece, and graduated from the Chemical Engineering Department of the National Technical University of Athens. He was awarded his master's degree from the University of Florida and his PhD in Chemical Engineering from the University of Minnesota. He was appointed assistant professor at Caltech, where he received a professorial position six years later. In 1985, he joined the MIT Department of Chemical Engineering, where he has ever been since. His field of research is biotechnology and metabolic engineering, and has co-authored approximately 500 papers, five books. His research led to approximately 50 patents. He has received a great number of awards, which, if I list it now, might take half of the episode. Among these awards have been the presidency of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, his election as member of the National Academy of Engineering in the USA, and being corresponding member of the Academy of Athens. Welcome to the Global Greek Influence, Greg. Uh, thank you, Panayota. Why were you drawn towards metabolic engineering when sustainability was not even a priority to the chemical industry or governmental policies? Uh, sustainability actually became uh, a, 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 an important parameter in, in later years. Uh, the, the first days of metabolic engineering go back in uh, 1990, I would say, and uh, they were catalyzed primarily by the advent of the dramatic developments uh, in the area of molecular biology, genetic engineering, and recombinant DNA technology. Uh, there was not a single uh, area of uh, science and engineering that was not uh, affected by these developments. Uh, and of course, biochemical engineering was a natural area uh, to, to look for applications of uh, uh, recombinant DNA technology. Uh, for me, being a chemical engineer uh, with a biochemical engineering background, It was very clear at that time that what this technology really allowed one to do was mainly new chemistry. Uh, it allowed to do new chemistry using harnessing actually the uh, tremendous potential of biology of microorganisms uh, because of the ability to transfer functions from one microbe to another, uh, synthesize new pathways for synthesis of uh, compounds, Uh, and try to make different products uh, efficiently or even to synthesize products that were not possible to synthesize before. Uh, and uh, for those products that you cannot make by chemistry, clearly biotechnology is the way to go. Uh, but for those products that you can also make by chemical methods, uh, the key question was why would you prefer biotechnology as uh, compared to chemistry to do that? And I think for large volume low added value uh, products, uh, the clear answer that emerges today is because you can make these products in a sustainable way, uh, and this is not something that you can do with chemistry. So sustainability uh, came later uh, as we were looking for ways to uh, justify uh, where biotechnology might be preferable, 
uh, one of the main reasons you would like to use biotechnology for making things like uh, glycols and uh, organic acids and uh, uh, small uh, chemical molecules. By small, I mean small molecular weight. Uh, one major uh, uh, impetus for this is the ability to, to make them in a sustainable manner. What makes the renewable production of biofuels and industrial biocommodities now a priority to chemical engineering, apart from all the environmental concerns, apart from the sustainability of materials used, and of course the drive by local, governmental or national policies? I think it is the increasing realization that uh, um, humanity has reached uh, the limits uh, in terms of uh, uh, storing uh, byproducts of uh, these processes, uh, in terms of uh, um, allowing pollutants to accumulate uh, uncontrolled in, in, in the environment. Um, so, uh, I remember when I was uh, in my first years of uh, graduate studies, uh, the concern was about uh, securing enough amount of energy. Do we have enough energy to fuel uh, human civilization for the next uh, so many years? Uh, and there was very serious concern about that. Uh, um, you may have heard of uh, peak oil uh, and the exploration of uh, shale oil in Colorado, difficult uh, types of oil to explore. Uh, and then slowly these concerns uh, disappeared uh, and they were replaced by the concern that uh, we have enough oil to burn, but we are running out of space to put the byproducts of the oil combustion uh, because we only have a thin shell around the earth where that can be stored without consequences. And that's filling up. We are running out of place to put that uh, uh, carbon dioxide. So it's becoming a very pressing priority now. Uh, and just to give you another example, programs of the Department of Energy uh, in the United States, for example, uh, they would be structured in such a way as uh, to optimize processes from an energy point of view. In other words, minimize the amount of energy which is required for a chemical process, for example. Uh, what we see now is uh, exactly the opposite of this. Of, of this. Uh, and and the, the, the programs are structured such that you minimize the amount of carbon dioxide which is released and you don't care about how much energy you're going to produce. Before it was, you minimize the amount of energy that you need, and you don't care about the carbon dioxide that you release, and now these roles have been flipped. Uh, now, another observation I want to make is that uh, uh, in, in my career, I've had a lot of interactions with uh, the chemical industry, chemical industry, petrochemical industry, etc., as they were looking for ways to advance their own programs in biotechnology. Uh, so in, one of, in, in several of these discussions, I remember asking them uh, when I was hearing things like uh, expansion of a cracker capacity to by adding another million tons of uh, polyethylene production, for example, uh, etc. Uh, and I said, are you concerned at all that, uh, that uh, uh, you may not be able to, to sell these products because of the increasing reaction of uh, society uh, against uh, the use of more polymers, against the processes that make them, etc., etc. Uh, and I was, re I don't know what your answer to this question is going to be, but the answer that I received consistently from many of these uh, executives of the chemical industry was that uh, 
This is our top priority. Of course, we are concerned about that, and we are preparing that we may be shut down tomorrow in the production of these different molecules. However, until that happens, nothing is going to change. We are going to continue producing all of these different products, uh, and if we are forced somehow to um, stop their production, we'll see what we are going to do with that, which was a big eye-opening experience for me. What you just mentioned is what most of the chemical engineers also realize, even those in research, that the chemical industry will continue to make these products until they will be asked not to. And that's why there is the exploration of alternative processes in order for them to be ready to continue business as usual. At least this is my personal version. I would agree with that. That's that's what it looks like. And you know, you, you need to remember also, uh, if you're asking an oil company to, uh, to, to change the way they do business, essentially what you're asking this oil company to do is to forego trillions of dollars of uh, uh, assets in reserve which are underground. This is not so easy to do. I mean, if we think about that. Now, if we move back to metabolic engineering, um, research in biochemical and metabolic engineering is synergistically shared between chemical engineering and the life sciences. What are the contributions of chemical engineers to biochemical and metabolic engineering? Uh, this is a very good question because uh, chemical engineers are chemical engineers. They are not uh, geneticists or uh, biologists. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, molecular biologists do molecular biology. So it's important to understand what, what the role of uh, uh, these groups of people uh, really is. Uh, again, drawing from my own personal experience in this area, I was, edu I was educated as a chemical engineer uh, my uh, exposure to biotechnology happened during my doctoral uh, research and the immediate years after that. These were the formative years of recombinant DNA technology, as I said before, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of attention uh, in, in uh, molecular biology. Uh, so uh, when, you, when you look at a microbial cell, let's say a bacterium, uh, as a production uh, a mechanism, as, uh, uh, as, as a little chemical factory which is going to make uh, polymers, uh, small molecules, pharmaceuticals, uh, fragrances, etc. Uh, for you, uh, this is going to happen because glucose is taken up by these cells and then it is converted through the thousands of reactions which take place inside the microbial cell. So this glucose is converted into the product of interest. And at the end of the day, this microbe is going to produce uh, ethanol, ethylene glycol, uh, a biopolymer, uh, or a pharmaceutical uh, molecule. The, the way by which this is done, the actual practical method by which this is done is... Uh, uh, by changing the composition of the enzymes of this microbe so that uh, the pathway that is preferred in the conversion of glucose is the pathway that makes the product that you want to make. Uh, and of course, this all involves uh, genetic manipulations. 
uh, making these genetic manipulations, at least today, has become pretty trivial. Uh, you can do that uh, not only with a single uh, enzyme, but you can multiplex the modulation of many enzymes. Uh, you can modulate the activity of many enzymes and many pathways. You can screen them in parallel. You can do many, many things. And all of this is because of the incredible advances in molecular biology that uh, took place in the last uh, 25 years. The role of the engineers comes when they look at these pathways as a different reaction pathway, and they ask the question, where is the limiting step? Uh, why is my yield lower than the theoretical yield? How can I... Uh, re-engineer this microbe in order to make it more efficient, more productive, and make it capable of competing with a corresponding chemical process. Uh, and this involves now uh, things like identifying the rate-limiting step, uh, using measurements to find out what happens to the carbon which is, which is being processed by the biochemical pathway. Uh, and this fall in the realm of uh, a biochemical engineer, of of a chemical engineer. In many cases, chemical engineers have acquired the skills of doing molecular biology themselves. Um, are they as competent as a geneticist in doing these things? In some cases they are, in some other cases they are not. Uh, but I think that uh, the distinctive characteristic of uh, chemical engineers in this area is their attention to the integrated system. They are looking at the integrated pathway as a system, and they ask the question, where can I intervene in this pathway? What targets can I identify? And then ideally, they should work with a molecular biologist uh, in order to do what it takes uh, to the target that they identified by applying their tools. I understand the challenge in manipulating living organisms is great because when you have a living organism, you are not 100% sure when you test it how it's going to react within a certain environment. Therefore, what reaction rates it will give you for a given process and to control the environment in a way to have a satisfactory yield for that process. So how challenging is the manipulation and modification of living organisms for large-scale production of chemicals, making them economically feasible? It is, it is pretty challenging. Um, it, it requires a new way of thinking. Um, but uh, uh, all of this goes down to the roots of uh, uh, chemical engineering, uh, which is... Uh, um, uh, looking at the theoretical yields for the, for the production of a particular product, uh, as I said before, identifying rate-limiting steps. Uh, a rate-limiting step is a key in opening up a pathway and making more of a product, um, and then implementing all of these things in the laboratory. Uh, if you think a little about this, this is not different than what chemical engineers have been doing uh, for a very long time. The big difference is that they are doing it in a different system. Uh, they have to use different measurements. Uh, if you are doing it, uh, for example, with a chemical reacting system, then uh, you go into the, your little reactor and you sample and you find out the concentrations of the intermediates and you know what you're doing. 
But if this is happening inside the microbial cell, it is more challenging to do the same thing. So you have to rely uh, on other methods. Perhaps uh, uh, you are using um, a, an isotopic tracer. And this tracer, through the distribution of the labeled carbons into the different pathways, allows you to identify what's going on in the chemical reactions in that pathway. So you have to be ingenious as to how you try to uh, understand uh, the chemistry which is going on inside the microbe. But the fundamental pr principles don't change. Uh, chemical reactions obey stoichiometry, kinetics, and thermodynamics. Uh, and these remain fundamental for a biochemical system, just the same way they are for a purely chemical system. This year has been quite challenging, especially when it comes to teaching at universities and especially for courses like chemical engineering where students had to access labs. I've seen back in 2005, uh, Cambridge University has published um, the outcomes of a program regarding web labs uh, where Cambridge, uh, the University of Leipzig and MIT have collaborated in uh, seeing how web labs can help uh, chemical engineering students to access and operate experiments remotely. Could the development of web labs for remotely controlled experiments potentially become a core pedagogical activity? to enrich the experimental experience of undergraduate programs of chemical engineers? Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that uh, it may allow uh, students to gain access to equipment and systems uh, uh, that uh, they are not available in their own laboratory. Um, and uh, uh, any laboratory anywhere in the world is going to have a limited collection of, exper of experiments they teach to the students. Um, and it is very enriching to have access to other uh, equipment and other methods uh, within the allowed time to use this uh, equipment. Uh, it is less expensive. Uh, it, is, it, it allows access to a large number of students. So these are tangible benefits for all of that. Now, what are the negatives of this? Uh, the negatives are, uh, by the way, um, I offered the web lab uh, uh, module uh, in one of my classes uh, pretty much in the same time frame. This was in collaboration with uh, North Carolina State University. Uh, they were doing, the, they, they had the uh, uh, different actuators and the real experiment. And what we're doing at MIT was to remote control these experiments and use it uh, for the web lab module that we taught our students. Uh, so the uh, negatives that I see are that uh, uh, as I observe the students uh, working with a web lab module, uh, they uh, somehow felt that this was a simulated situation. Uh, it was not real. Uh, the fact that uh, this experiment was happening in real time in North Carolina, uh, had to be, they had to be reminded of that. Uh, it was somehow missed by the students. And then, you know, after a while, they treated that uh, as a simulated uh, package which was giving them uh, different kinds of answers, and then they had to uh, work with that. Uh, and um, um, 
that reduced the the, the aspect of how real the whole thing was. Uh, the other thing that I found as negative is uh, a lot more mundane than that. Uh, it is the fact that uh, if you run an experiment in a laboratory, uh, a pH meter is going to uh, malfunction, a pump is going to break down, um, uh, a, a pressure measurement is uh, not... You, you'll wonder if the measurement is correct or not. Uh, and... Uh, uh, an important part of, edu of education is uh, to have the student go and look at that, find out what's wrong, uh, pull out the pH meter, see it, feel it, and replace it with another pH meter, calibrate that pH meter. So all of these menial processes, I think, actually menial steps in the overall process, I think they add significantly to the education of the student, uh, and they are being missed in a web lab environment. The final thing is what I'm being reminded by, uh, I was reminded by my son when he was applying to different uh, colleges, uh, and I was arguing for the quality of education in this college or that college, and etc. And he used to tell me that, uh, Dad, you don't understand. The most important thing going to college is the other classmates you are going to have in that college. It's the students you are going to interact with, how smart they are, what they bring to the table. And I think a big part of that is going to be missed in a web lab environment. So there are positives and negatives. Certainly there is place for a web lab, but by no means it should replace the, the uh, real experiment. Your accomplishments and distinction is the best example of importance of academic institutions empowering economic growth. Would this be possible without universities having provisions and tools for excellence and entrepreneurship? Um, again, the, my experience in this comes from what I saw at the University of Florida, University of Minnesota, Caltech, and MIT. And this is, and of course, visits to, to many universities all over the world. Uh, so I can offer the following observations. Uh, the first one is that uh, I cannot think of uh, uh, a technologically and economically advanced country uh, which is not supported by a first-class academic institution. Uh, not only country, but even region. If you are looking at places in the United States, if you are looking at places in Europe, etc., and you see a hub of economic activity, I think you should look for, a, for an engine uh, of that development in the form of an academic institution very near the place of the economic activity. Uh, this is, let me point out, this is a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition. I don't want to imply that uh, if you have a first-class institution, certainly economic activity is going to follow because this is not correct. But the opposite of having a first-class economic activity without the support of a first-class institution, I'm very hard-pressed to find examples to support that kind of a concept. A first-class academic institution is uh, an absolute necessity in uh, progress and economic growth. Uh, now, um, how this happens, um, we, we understand certain, certain elements of that process, not the whole process. Uh, because, uh, for example, the Cambridge area around MIT is uh, uh, one uh, premier example of what I said before. 
if you uh, account for all of the companies that have been founded by MIT faculty and uh, students, um, you would uh, you would have the total would be the fifth or the sixth largest economy in the world. Actually, it is so impressive and so large. Um, but uh, so I mean, people have looked at the Cambridge MIT area to see what is special about this place. Can we emulate that and transplant this into other places? And this has worked with different degrees of success. Uh, because there are many elements, some of them are uh, university-related. Uh, uh, for example, MIT has uh, this uh, competition for business plans that they reward $100,000 to the winner. I've been to several of them, and I see venture capitalists, actually, who will go there and listen to the presentations, listen to the ideas, and then they'll decide to fund to fund. Uh, uh, the, the, the business plan that ranked uh, number 10, for example, not the number one, because they see a lot more potential in number 10 than uh, in number one. Um, so this is one of the mechanisms, and there are many of them, uh, in, in, uh, at least within the confines of MIT, but there are many other things as well. For example, uh, to uh, transplant or to, to advance an idea from the laboratory uh, initially to a startup company and then to a grown company and have a successful enterprise, uh, you need a, a good contractual and legal environment. You need to have people who understand intellectual property, uh, who are prepared to spend money to defend the intellectual property and to make it the cornerstone of the economic activity. Uh, you need to have advisors who are going to work initially with the researchers as they are starting up the company and guide them through their first steps in this process. Uh, you need to have an academic institution that understands that uh, uh, it is important, the most important uh, uh, thing for a starting company is uh, money, is cash. So if they start the company because they have a lot of demands for their technology, for example, then they are killing the company uh, that they are trying to start in the first place. Uh, then uh, they need to have uh, the correct arrangement of a con conflict of interest. Do they allow, I mean, if, you, if a company is starting up, uh, the, the professor in whose laboratory the technology was developed needs to be involved in that. Actually, many companies are going to demand this, that if we don't have the professor, we are not going, we are not going to invest any money in this activity. Does the institution allow the faculty to have that kind of activity? Do they allow them to uh, use some incubator space in uh, the, the institution while the company is trying to stand on its feet? Do they provide introductions to venture capitalists uh, or they give them access to talking to these people? So you see there are many, many ingredients that need to come in place in order to allow for an initial idea. And it is not an easy thing. I can tell you this, it is not an easy thing. Uh, it is, there is a lot of enthusiasm initially when uh, students and postdocs get together and, and they decide to start a company, uh, but things become very real uh, one or two years later. Uh, people are not going to give uh, millions of dollars to anyone uh, without putting in place what's going to take for these millions of dollars to multiply and provide a return for that. And all of these different checks that they put in place, I mean, they need to be done right. Uh, 
You may do right as an investor, something that will make you feel very happy uh, because you have control of the company, you have a big equity stake in the company, etc. But if this is killing the incentive on the part of the founders to do anything, you are going to be left with the paper company, which is not worth much because the real engines of uh, this uh, idea are not there or they have no incentive anymore. So as you see, there are many, many elements that need to come together. And uh, um, that's what differentiates one successful place from, from another. And now if we're going to move from a successful place, a successful organization to a successful person, how can one sustain the pursuit of excellence and high standards as motivations for personal growth in a sterile environment? I think this is deeply, uh, deeply personal. Um, and uh, um, I don't, it, it can be instilled, it can be cultivated. Uh, role models play a big part in that, uh, but it comes down to being deeply perso uh, personal. Uh, is one happy by producing something which is uh, not the best, which is first, which is not first class, um, or one is striving for the to, to to be the best in 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 an area to really produce produce the the best results one can. Um, I think this is this is driven by personal motivation, um, and it can be cultivated. Like I said before, it can be encouraged. Uh, it needs to be rewarded. This is very important. People need encouragement uh, in this process, and this can come in, in many forms. It can come in the form of uh, uh, an encouraging nod from the part of an advisor, uh, in the form of an award, in the form of a good publication, in the form of money, uh, but it needs to be encouraged. If people don't see uh, their uh, striving for excellence to be recognized, which of course raises the question, are they doing this in order to get the kudos from other people or they are doing it for their own personal uh, uh, satisfaction? And I think it is a combination of both of them. Uh, but uh, the encouragement is needed as well as uh, the, the personal motivation to excel in a particular area. You mentioned that in order to achieve personal excellence and to comply with high standards, so which are, are of course self-imposed, one might need a role model. What is the description of a successful role model in the academia? Uh, uh, it, it can take many forms. Um, and uh, um, uh, certainly um, an, uh, a, a good teacher, uh, an, an, an inspiring teacher uh, who uh, reaches out to uh, many students, who uh, motivates many students, uh, is uh, an excellent uh, role model. Um, uh, I've seen some professors, for example, lecturing uh, not technical matters, but lecturing things like uh, justice, for example, to an auditorium of uh, hundreds of people. Uh, and these students are totally hooked uh, to, to the words that come out of that uh, professor, which is uh, a talent. Uh, it is not easy. It, it, it's, uh, it requires deep education. Uh, 
uh, and a lot of uh, uh, ability to communicate with people. So uh, it is a talent and it is an excellent role model. I mean, uh, uh, you, you look at that professor, you are really inspired. Uh, then it may be a professor who works uh, very well with students in the laboratory, inspires them to do some experiments, encourage because you know we, we tend to focus on the successful outcome, but before you see the successful outcome, you are going to see many failures. Dealing with these failures and uh, looking at the bright side of a failed experiment and uh, uh, identifying the, the positive aspects and uh, uh, at the end of the meeting, coming up with a recommendation that, uh, okay, we failed this time, but uh, if we do this, then uh, we are going to have a good uh, opportunity for succeeding. Uh, that, that's another good, uh, uh, a good role model, I think. Uh, involving students in the process and uh, uh, making a part of that process. Uh, in other words, engaging the student and the postdoc in the overall process of creativity uh, is very important. Uh, it's, it's terrible to treat students as a pair of hands, for example, and just the issue orders, you do this and you do that and you do that. That's not going to, you are not building a self-thinking creative individual this way. You need to involve them in the whole thought process. If, if the experiments are successful, then these students and postdocs, they need to be rewarded as partners in whatever company is going to be formed in this, in this way. So these are elements that really make for good mentors, I think, and uh, they, they, they provide for good role models. And we have the opposite of that, which are going to be, of course, the bad role models. So in both cases uh, of a successful role model and the case of uh, sustaining excellence and high standards are rewards and recognition. So these, I would keep this as the core to being a good role model and uh, when it comes to oneself, in order to sustain excellence and high standards, there has to be a reward and recognition. Now, one final question. I listened on YouTube a video which was filmed back in 2015 and recorded during your opening remarks for Making Greece a Technology Hub by 2021. You mentioned that from antiquity to the pro-revolution to the Ottoman Empire and post-World War II era, the establishment of Greek trade seaports could give lessons to create an entrepreneurial ecosystem. What could these lessons be from those historical lessons? I think that the, the, the big lesson to be learned from uh, by watching Greek traders, entrepreneurs uh, and investors in uh, the greater uh, Mediterranean area and the Black Sea is that uh, they flourished and they did very well in uh, an open and stable environment in which they could operate. Uh, whenever they were confined into a small area by tariffs, by uh, conflicts, by national borders, etc., they did not do well because uh, other factors, I think, dominated the economic activity. And these other factors could be driven by nationalistic sentiments, by religious constraints, 
uh, by uh, um, uh, support or privileges to special groups, etc. And Greeks being a, a small group in general, they suffered. Whenever constraints like this were imposed, the, the small groups who are tempted, who have the means, etc., they are not going to do well. Uh, all of these constraints are going to favor other groups and Greeks did not do well in these environments. So as, as we go forward now and we see the emergence of nation states and the fragmentation of these bigger areas uh, of the Ottoman Empire, for example, into uh, smaller nation states, we see the emergence of uh, uh, these constraints stronger and stronger. And these constraints, of course, uh, they aim to uh, favor uh, small insular groups within its environment, uh, and if Greeks were outside of uh, these groups, uh, of course, they could not do well. I mean, uh, just look at the, uh, all of the successful Greek con colonies around the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, uh, the trade they did, uh, the, the wealth they amassed, and how all of this disappeared uh, in the last 150 years. Uh, so in a, big, uh, uh, in a big union, like the uh, European Union, for example, they can do very well because... Uh, that, that's what this union is uh, trying to provide. Uh, hopefully a level playing field where entrepreneurial activity and uh, uh, risk-taking and uh, uh, eagerness to work hard and benefit from that is going to be rewarded. And uh, um, that's the environment that the Greeks need, I think, in order to do very well. At this point... I would like to thank you again, Greg, for accepting the invitation of the Global Greek Influence podcast to enrich its content in regard to your contribution to cutting-edge research, long-standing path in the academia, and how an academic can fuel the economy and produce entrepreneurship. Thank, thank you, Yoda. I would like also to thank the Global Greek Influence audience that follows it during this different summer. We'll be back with episodes on geopolitics, energy policy, and research and innovation policies. Please subscribe and follow on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to keep up to date with a new episode. Till next time.